You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Events like what happened in Uvalde, Texas this week make us wonder, where the hell is God? Where is he? How do we as people of faith deal with the problem of evil and suffering? Such questions are a part of a very broad field of study in theological circles called theodicy. This is what this question is called or this dilemma, the the problem of suffering and, uh, and evil. And it has to do with reconciling, theodicy has to do with reconciling the existence of a powerful and benevolent deity with events like this week, profound suffering and evil. How do we reconcile those things? And it's a very old problem that many books in the Bible were written to address, at least in part. And so today I want to explore the various theodicies we find in the scriptures because it's interesting. And if I may be so bold, understanding this may change the way that you read the Bible. Uh, It has changed the way I read scripture. And my hope is it also helps us wrestle with this problem of theodicy. The first theodicy we're going to look at is known as the prophetic theodicy, because it's the theodicy found in the prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Micah, Amos, etc. But it's also found in other places in the Old Testament. Really, it is the dominant theodicy, explanation for evil and suffering, uh, that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's based on this idea that when Israel is oppressed or invaded by one of their neighbors, or there's some kind of drought or famine in the land, some kind of cataclysmic event that threatens their existence, the reason given is that they, are, they must be being punished by God for some sin. Israel has gone astray, is the idea given. Uh, whether that means they're worshiping a foreign deity or they're practicing injustice in the land or some combination of both, the idea, the reason given for their suffering is that Israel has sinned. Israel has broken their covenant with the Lord, and now God is punishing them famine, drought, invasion, war, slavery, whatever, God is now punishing them in order to draw them back to himself, right? Calling them towards repentance. And only when Israel repents, they're told. Only when Israel repents, will God deliver and rescue them and restore them. That's the prophetic theodicy that we find time and time again throughout the Old Testament. You will find it everywhere, not just in the prophets, but in the Torah, the Pentateuch, everywhere in the Old Testament. But this theodicy was not without its detractors because people realized, Israelites realized even way back then, that it wasn't always the case that the wicked suffer and the righteous prosper. It wasn't always the case. Um, the, the, the fa- in fact, the opposite is often true, is it not? That the wicked The wicked prosper, the wicked succeed and are able or allowed to oppress the righteous. The righteous often suffer without cause. 
the righteous often suffer unjustly. And so it became necessary, even way back then, in ancient Israel, to address this problem, to address this fact, and address the inadequacies of the prophetic theodicy. And we find that critique primarily in the two books of Job and Ecclesiastes. Job and Ecclesiastes function in the ancient Hebrew tradition as a repudiation of that prophetic theodicy by arguing that suffering is both inexplicable and unjust. I mean, that's one of the central core messages of the books of Job and Ecclesiastes. Suffering is both inexplicable and unjust. The righteous often suffer without cause. Suffering is not necessarily God's punishment, Job and Ecclesiastes claim. We don't know why bad things happen to good people. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes goes further than even that. It goes further than even Job in this regard. Ecclesiastes makes this point and argues that we are all subject to time and chance. We are all subject to the random forces of nature. We are all are like animals, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We have no advantage over the animals, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. As one dies, so dies the other. We all have the same breath, he says. We all return to the dust. We, are all, we all are from the dust. We all return to the dust again. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It all meaninglessness. All is full of emptiness and meaninglessness. Vanity of vanity. And, and all of these questions are like chasing after the wind, the book of Ecclesiastes says. And again, functioned as a repudiation of that neat and tidy prophetic theodicy that claimed that you know, suffering was always tied to sin. Isn't it interesting that the Hebrew scriptures hold these competing ideas in tension with each other without trying to resolve them? I love that. I feel like we Christians can learn a lot from this. Imagine if we were raised to read the Bible and think of our faith not as a you know, unified system of thought or uh, a system of theological propositions that you must unquestionably believe in or else, but rather as an ongoing and constantly evolving dialogue about who God is and what it means to be his people. Imagine if we saw the text that way. Imagine how much more healthy Christianity and our experience in the church would have been. Uh, but I digress. Job and Ecclesiastes mark a turning point in Hebrew history. They mark a turning point in the Old Testament that, that led to a different theodicy and a different worldview. And this is this different theodicy, this different worldview can be called apocalypticism or an apocalyptic theodicy. And this began a few centuries before Christ in Israel. At that time in Israel, about 200 years before Christ, the Israelites were, were oppressed, and Israel was occupied by an empire called the Seleucids. And the Seleucids were essentially a Greek empire. And what was unique about them is that they wanted to completely eradicate all vestiges of the Hebrew religion. They enforced laws such that if you even practiced circumcision, you would be put to death. You practice any Jewish, Hebrew, religious rite or ritual, you were put to death. The Seleucids even went and put a statue of Zeus, because they were Greeks, 
put a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies of the Jerusalem temple, and then sacrificed a pig. If you know something about Hebrew culture, pigs were unclean. They sacrificed a pig on an altar to him. That's how far they went to try to eradicate you know, the Hebrew religious customs. And all of this, of course, shocked and confused many Israelites because clearly this kind of suffering could not come from God, they thought. Why would God punish us for trying to keep the covenant? Why would God punish us for trying to worship him? Why would he take away from us the eternal right of circumcision? Clearly this kind of suffering could not come from God, many of them reasoned. There must be some other reason for why we are being oppressed this way. So the traditional prophetic theodicy for many Israelites at that time no longer worked. And so many of them during this time began to believe that there must be some other agent at work in the cosmos that's responsible for this. Enter Satan. <laughs> God must have an adversary that is causing us to unjustly suffer, they reason. This is where the devil or Satan, at least as we understand him, originates in, the, in Hebrew history. Now, Satan is, of course, mentioned before this in the book of Job and maybe just a couple other places in the Old Testament, but it's important to understand that that Satan was not the Satan that we're familiar with now. That Satan was not the adversary, the arch nemesis of God. That Satan was actually more like a servant of God, more like an employee, more like every other angel under the Lord's charge, we're told. You know, like in the book of Job, Satan is called to the, to the court of heaven to give a report about his doings, just like every other angel, every other heavenly host was. And this Satan, again, wasn't the enemy of God. He was more like the servant of God. And for most of Hebrew history, that's how Hasatan, as he was called, uh, the accuser, the prosecutor, literally, uh, is the translation. His job was to function like in a court setting to accuse or to prosecute humanity before the Lord. He functioned more as a, an employee, more of a servant of, of God. But around the time of the Seleucids and the reign of the Persians, that view changed. Satan goes from employee to adversary in the Hebrew tradition. And so it was even perhaps before the Seleucid period that this all changed when the Israelites were essentially dominated by the Persian empire. Um, and the Persians, this is about 400 years before Christ, they had a religion called Zoroastrianism. I love saying that, Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism taught that the cosmos was essentially a battleground between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And the cosmos was essentially run by two opposing deities, this benevolent, loving, and gracious God, the good God above, and this malevolent, evil, and destructive deity. And it's the theory of many scholars that this is where Hasatan in the Hebrew tradition became the Satan we all are familiar with. And so this became their new worldview and even their new theodicy, what we would call an apocalyptic theodicy. So it, again, it marked a turning point from the dominant prophetic theodicy of the day to an apocalyptic one. Apocalypse means an unveiling or a, a revealing or a revelation. And what was revealed in apocalypticism is that evil, evil and suffering exist not necessarily because God is punishing us, 
but because the world is run by an evil deity, Satan and his minions, his demonic kingdom. That's why we're suffering. Many Jews during the Seleucid period believe that's why you know, the, the Jerusalem temple was desecrated and they were being killed for trying to keep the covenant. It was because of Satan, not because God was punishing us, but because God's enemy was hard at work. This is apocalypticism. This is the apocalyptic theodicy. And it's really on display in the four gospels. Jesus and many of his contemporaries, like John the Baptist, are what we call apocalypticists, meaning they were apocalyptic preachers and teachers who taught that Satan and his kingdom were oppressing God's people and ruling over this world. And yet God, through Jesus of Nazareth, was going to liberate us from this demonic oppression and inaugurate a new kingdom in the world, i.e. the kingdom of God. As 1 John 3.8 says, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy all the works of the devil. That is Jewish apocalypticism and early Christian apocalypticism par excellence. And it's why we see Jesus performing exorcisms and things like that. It was meant to demonstrate that he had the power and the authority over Satan and the end of the age was at hand. And this was absolutely understood in Jesus's day and in the early church as both theological and political. As Jesus and his contemporaries did not think of theology and politics as separate categories like many of us do today. For Jesus and his contemporaries, the spiritual powers that govern the cosmos were reflected in the imperial and political powers that rule our world. They were really one and the same. And therefore, they were both under the judgment of God, who will in the end defeat them and establish his kingdom and his rule and his reign among the nations and within the cosmos. And great will this reversal be, we're told. The first will be last and the last will be first. The humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. The meek shall inherit the earth. The poor will be raised up and the rich and mighty will be brought low we're told. This was the apocalyptic worldview of Jesus and his contemporaries and that of the early church. And to be clear, we don't know how much of this apocalyptic language and apocalyptic theodicy was meant to be taken literally. Many scholars believe the apocalyptic language we find in the Gospels and certainly in the book of Revelation was really describing political upheaval and merely using otherworldly language to describe the fight between good and evil in this life, in this world. And I think that's true. But I don't think the ancients bifurcated the world into these neat little categories like we do, like the spiritual and the non-spiritual, the political and the theological. It was all the same for them, I believe, or at least there was so much overlap, really wasn't bifurcated. But let's get back to how this functioned as a theodicy. All of that was important to know. It told people, this, this apocalyptic theodicy told people the reason why the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, at least for now, is because God isn't running this world. Not really. Satan is. Satan is the God of this world. 
and his minions are running the show. But rest assured, his time is short. And God, we're told, has already gained the victory in Jesus' death and resurrection. Therefore, it's only a matter of time until God's victory is fully realized at the second coming. At that time, God will make all things new, right all, right all wrongs, reward the righteous and punish the wicked, and undo all the works of the evil one. Finally, destroy all the works of the devil. But here we are, 2,000 years later. And that still has not happened, has it? And this week and what happened in Uvalde, Texas, is yet one more example of that truth. Actually, it was actually a big deal that it didn't happen within the first century, that Jesus didn't return and finish the deal and finish his victory, consummate his victory. It was a big deal that it didn't happen within the lifetime of Jesus's original disciples and the apostle Paul. There's good evidence that they believed it was going to. And the fact that it didn't is partly what gave rise to Gnosticism which is the last theodicy I want to look at here this morning. Gnosticism. Just as apocalypticism was in many ways a response to the failures of the prophetic theodicy, so Gnosticism arose in the first century church in many ways because of the failures of the apocalyptic theodicy. What do I mean? The fact that Satan, sin, and death are apparently not defeated, and the apocalyptic worldview is not holding up. Gnosticism, despite not being a unified system of thought, taught in large part that suffering exists because this world and this universe was not made by the good God above. It was made quite against his will by an evil deity that we don't really know. But it's why this world is the way it is. God did not make the world. An evil deity did. Jesus, therefore, did not come to redeem this world. Rather, he came to show us how we can leave this corrupt world behind and this corrupt body behind by gaining secret knowledge, secret saving special spiritual knowledge. <laughs> That's what Gnosticism means. It means, you know, to know the special secret spiritual knowledge. And those who know, those who get this special secret spiritual knowledge, which is basically that we are disembodied, that, that we are essentially holy and pure spirits inhabiting a corrupt body, those who gain this special secret knowledge one day transcend this corrupt realm, this irredeemable corrupt realm, and go and live with God in the perfect realm of the spirit above and be reunited with him, the one, the source from which our spirit came from. That's Gnosticism. And again, it was, became very popular in the early church at the reaction to the failures of apocalypticism because Satan, sin, and death weren't really defeated. I mean, apparently not. And where's Jesus? Where, isn't he coming back to finish his deal? He didn't do it. And again, that's even the perspective, you know, 50 years after Christ. We're still in the first century and people were like, well, I guess apocalypticism wasn't real. Gnosticism sounds good. And yet... Gnosticism and the switch mics, Bob, the other one seemed to be working better. What's that? Oh, thank you, sir. Maybe I should just talk like this, and that way I'm perfectly covered. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, where was I? We're talking about Gnosticism. 
But Gnosticism, for a lot of reasons, failed too. <laughs> Gnosticism's not the answer. Gnostic theodicy is not the answer. It had a lot of problems and it failed too, and was eventually stamped out in the fourth century and declared a heresy by the church, by the so-called Orthodox. And apocalypticism won the day. Apocalypticism was declared orthodoxy and apocalyptic theodicy and apocalypticism is still very much the, the main worldview, main theology, main theodicy of the church even today. I was raised in an apocalyptic worldview. Many of you were as well. Apocalypticism won the day. But again, here's the problem. If Satan, sin, and death were defeated 2,000 years ago, then why are they still doing so well? You know, if this is what their defeat looks like, imagine what their victory would look like. I imagine it wouldn't look much different. And so because this is the case, some Christians over the last couple centuries or so, myself included, have realized that all theodicies fail. There is no explanation for suffering and evil that works. All theodicies fail, in my opinion. Whether they're prophetic, apocalyptic, Gnostic, or whatever, none of them work. Because they're all trying to do something that can't be done. Explain suffering. And because this is the case, some Christians, including me, have adopted a view of Jesus and the cross that sees the cross as the death of all theodicies, the crucifixion and the death of all theodicies, all attempts at explaining suffering and how God is working it out. This understanding of the cross has become known as radical theology. And for those of you who have been here a while, you're like, oh, I know what that is. Some of you don't. That's okay. I'll explain it to you in this is going to be short, believe it or not. Um, this view has become known as radical theology or death of God theology. There's a name for you. Won't, people won't be beaten down the doors to hear this one. <laughs> but it's very much a reaction to the failure of theodicy in general. Radical theology holds that the cross is a symbol for life in the world as it really is. The cross is a symbol for life in the world as it really is absurd, nonsensical, cruel, unjust, chaotic. What's more cruel and unjust than someone who's innocent sentenced to die? What's more absurd and nonsensical than a powerless and crucified God? The cross is a symbol for the inexplicable nature of suffering. The cross is a, is a symbol for what happened this week in Uvalde, Texas. The cross is a symbol for the godlessness of the world and God's solidarity with all those who have been forsaken by God, so to speak. The God who cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the only God who is actually with us, in my view. Which is to say, is not that there is no God, hear the double negative there, but that God is not all-powerful. And the God who is truly with us, the sacred, the divine, the holy, the infinite, the transcendent, the source, the one, whatever you want to call it, 
This God suffers with us in the world and weeps when we weep and is himself their self, a victim of violence and was murdered at the hands of cruel men. That's the God revealed in the cross, I believe. It's not an explanation for suffering. It is the end of all theodicies. We're looking at it this way. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 25 that when we care for the suffering, the afflicted ones, the so-called God-forsaken ones, we are in fact caring for him. Jesus, that's God we're caring for. The afflicted, the suffering, the so-called God-forsaken ones is God in our midst. Which is to say that when we, when we stand in solidarity with the so-called God-forsaken ones and fight for them and care for them, we are in fact communing with the Lord himself. That's where we find the presence of God in the world, among the godless or the God-forsaken ones, which I know sounds paradoxical. But the deepest, most profound spiritual truths are always paradoxical in nature and always call us into this life, this world, and into love and solidarity. That's where we find the presence of our Lord, among the God-forsaken ones. God's presence is found in love and solidarity itself, I believe, which isn't really a theodicy. When we give ourselves completely over to love, the love of life and the love of others, we find the infinite, the holy, the sacred. We find all the transcendence, all the meaning, and all the joy we need in this life, I believe. All we need is love. For God is love. All we need is love. For God is love. This is where my journey has taken me over the years. I can no longer believe in any theodicy, but instead choose to believe in the cross alone. My faith, you could say, has become entirely cruciform. Cruciform means in the shape of a cross. But that's me, and, and you don't have to agree with me. <laughs> I want to finish today by saying this. Weeks like this one are so disheartening. It's perfectly normal and okay to feel powerless, overwhelmed, exhausted, and in despair. Despair is a perfectly normal thing to feel at times like this. In fact, if we didn't feel despair, I'd wonder if we really care enough. I'd wonder if we really understand just how bad things really are. So feeling despair is okay, but we can't live there. We can't give in to despair and allow it to keep us from fighting and resisting, from speaking up and standing in solidarity with those who need us most. We cannot allow despair to keep us from loving. We cannot allow despair to do that. In fact, it's only because of despair only because of despair that we have such a great opportunity. It is only because life is often inexplicably cruel and unjust that we have a great opportunity to do something amazing, only because of this truth. 
we have the opportunity to really love life on its own terms and to courageously choose love in the midst of this. We have an opportunity to take a leap of faith, so to speak, and say yes to life, despite all of its difficulties and perplexities and problems, we have the opportunity to say yes to life anyway. And perhaps this is the greatest act of faith, the greatest act of courage, the greatest act of love, to love life and love others, despite all the complexities and difficulties therein. Such a love is a kind of pure love, because you don't know if loving life and loving others is going to pay off or accomplish what you want it to. It is a pure act of grace, a pure act of faith to say yes to life and yes to love, despite all of the difficulties and complexities and uncertainties therein. That's an act of courage and an act of true faith and an act of pure love. And that's the wonderful opportunity we have by understanding the world as we do. And this strikes me as a Christ-like love. In the face of life's utter precariousness, love never bats an eye. In the face of all of life's problems and difficulties and perplexities, love never bats an eye. Doesn't bother love. In the face of the cross, Jesus' love never wavered. He was fully committed. Because that's what love is. At its heart, love is unconditional. It is without why. It is a glorious expenditure without any expectations about what might happen or any knowledge or any guarantees about a return or a payoff or anything like that. That's love. It's a way of giving ourselves completely over to life, completely over to the world and each other, as Christ did. And what could be better than that? That's the wonderful opportunity we have. May we be people of such love and light in dark, dark times such as these. And with that in mind, we're going to receive communion this morning. Emblems, of course, of Christ's unconditional love for us and his willingness to embrace the cross and the difficulties of this life, the perplexities of this life. Let us meditate on this as we receive Holy Communion this morning and as Max leads us in song. You are welcome to come forward now. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Well, I know I covered a lot of ground here this morning. Uh, (laughs) 
I was um, wrestling with this one this week being like, should I really say all this in one sermon in 25 minutes? But I don't know, I guess I like to do that. But um, this is such a complex, heavy topic, dealing with a lot of different ideas. And then of course, we're dealing with the news this week as well. And I wanna give space and invite people to um, talk about whatever is on their heart or on their mind about gun violence and this culture, this gun culture that we live in as well. And so I wanna invite, it's a very broad invitation this morning, invite any questions, any comments about any of that. Um, it could be about my talk, it can be about what happened this week and how you're processing that or wrestling with that. Um, yeah, it's not really a targeted discussion question, but, um, and it's okay if we, nobody wants to talk about it, but um, yeah, I just get to start anybody, anybody have anything? But any of this stuff. Yeah, Emily, let me get you the mic. Oh, it's right there. Thanks, Abe. Um, my question is, how did we get lumped into being here? <laughs> like, why was the world created if we were just meant to be here for suffering? Is, is the ultimate really just after death? Um, because why ultimately what were the first people created? Say that last part again, sorry. Why were the first people created? Like gotcha. the, if, if God is all knowing, he created the first two people to fail. So I don't understand how we ended up here so long later. What is the point of all of this? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you the short answer first. I don't know. <laughs> Um, anybody who claims they do is talking out of school. I don't have access to that information. Anybody who claims they do by pointing to some scripture in the Bible is kidding themselves at best and just lying and manipulating at worst. But those are the, you know, the, those are fundamentally unanswerable questions. The ones that I have certainly wrestled with and literally stayed up at night researching and writing about during seminary. I mean, that's really what a lot of ways propelled me into deconstruction is that is theodicy. That question is theodicy. How can we explain the existence of a powerful and benevolent deity with this? How do we, how do we reconcile that with this? How do we do it? And I used to think I had, I had good answers and I had a lot of intellectual gymnastics and good theology from the best minds, but you know what? doesn't really work. It's all, it's all just opinions and guesswork, speculation. The only thing that works for me now in my faith is to em em embrace what I was talking about at the end of my talk, this idea of love and that ultimately, if you want to put it in Christian terms, and I do, the cross and the person of Jesus of Nazareth as God incarnate, God poured out into this world in the human, 
in the midst of our lives as they actually are. That's the only thing that's meaningful for me anymore. How are we to live in a divine and holy and sacred way now in relationship to each other? Because that's God's presence. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. I have no idea what lies after this life in this world, if anything does at all. And frankly, I don't really care anymore. I'll be honest. I don't have a dog. So once in a while, I like talking about pantheism. I, I like this idea that consciousness undergirds reality and that our consciousness when we're gone will somehow merge with cosmic consciousness. I really like that topic. But when the rubber meets the road about what it means to be Christians, what does it mean to be you know, people of faith? For me, it's all about love and justice and finding the holy and the sacred right here, right now, and how we live with each other and fighting to make the world a better place. That, to me, is my faith. That's where I find everything meaningful and find, worth finding joy in here and now in my relationships and in my commitment to others and my commitment to this life and this world, not the world beyond. And it took me a while to get there. It's, it's not something that happened overnight. So I, I don't know if that works for you this morning, but Emily, but that's the best I can do. Does that, does that make sense, first of all, somewhat? It does, because I think, I think you're absolutely right. The answer to suffering is really community. It's a togetherness. Um, it's why things like NA and AA work. Um, I think that's the important thing, having this. Yeah. Especially at times like these. Thank you. I'm moved by what you just said. Um, yeah, somebody else want to um, chime in, respond to that, or have another question? Yeah, Cassandra. Um, I have a 17 year old as well. And she's always asking me why, why do these terrible things happen? And all I can tell her is that hurt people hurt people. And we just have to keep healing. You know, the trauma lives in the body and it really is passed down there is like, learning about science and brains and, and trauma, like it's, it's passed down. And so the healing has to go very deep. And I think that community is huge. And I think that's how we help people. So it's, you know, my daughter wants justice and she's angry when there's injustice and she wants revenge. But I just don't, I don't see it that way. I, I, I love the idea of these tribes I've read about where when someone does something wrong, they're brought to the center and they're, they're all shown love and they're reminded of love. And I think, I think that's what we need is just more love and um, obviously less guns. Yeah, amen. Thank you. You could hang out of that for a second until somebody else raises their hand. Thanks, Cassandra. Um, somebody else want to share something? Yeah, Anne, thank you. Thanks, Cassandra. Um, I was telling Aaron when we were standing outside, I just came back from a visit to uh, spend time with family in New Orleans. So I was down there for two weeks. Another piece of this story is 
I'm very much an introvert and I had four house guests for two weeks. And then two days later, I went to New Orleans for two weeks to stay with my dad and my four young adult children and my daughter's boyfriend in one house. That's so a lot. I, it was a lot. <laughs> and then just, um, just before we left, this shooting happened and I don't watch news. Even with not watching news, I knew this happened. That's how bad it was. Um, I read, but I don't watch it. And um, I came back really overwhelmed, like personally overwhelmed just because of my introversion <laughs> and going back to work. And I worked the whole time I was in New Orleans too, on top of it. And um, came back and couldn't, I, I was teary all week and couldn't even look at anything. I haven't read very much. I haven't followed it closely. I just couldn't. It felt like I, I, I was thinking about it this week and it's, it felt emotionally like, like when you have a sunburn and you put on a backpack or something and it just hurts. Like, like I was so overwhelmed already that, and, and this was, this was a big thing. And, and so I've spent this week kind of trying to just regroup on some level and was really looking forward to coming to church today. And your sermon touches like so many points for me. My deconstruction also began because of the idea of suffering and things not going the way I was told they would go if I did the right things kind of model of faith. And, um, and that's been the primary source of my deconstruction has been this specific question, reconciling suffering with an all-knowing, all-powerful God, all-loving God. And so trying to let go of some of that has been really, really a long, difficult process for me. Um, and so I appreciate what you said today, especially at the end, because I am very slowly kind of coming to that, that like, it's just love. That's, that's really all, that's the only thing. That's literally the only thing. And I have a young daughter too, 19, and she's um, much more um, into a more traditional form of Christianity is, is all I know to describe it. But it's interesting with this generation because I find like, at least for her and her friends, they are still in that world, but they bring a lot of progressive ideas into it. So she's all about justice. She's all about how the church has hurt people. She's, uh, and so it's, it's, it gives me a lot of hope in many ways in these times that just feel, it just feels so overwhelming and hopeless right now. And I, I hate that, but, um, but I really appreciate your sermon because I feel like it was like this arc of the, the problem that we struggle with in our faith, the reconciling suffering and God, and then what's something that can fill that spot. Well, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you feel that way. And thank you so much for, 
for saying so and, and sharing all that you did. Yeah. Um, anybody else have any other remarks this morning? How they're wrestling with things? Yeah, Misha, let me get you the mic. Thanks. Um, just thinking about the, you were talking about the paradoxical threat through Christianity and, and religions. And I find that in a lot of religions, as, as unjust as suffering is, um, when we look at like John 1, like let there be light, it meant that there had to be darkness. Mm. And in the same way, it's, I almost wonder if as, as an unjust and unfair and cruel as suffering is, is if we need that kind of balance of suffering to really understand the immense transformational power of love. Because it's with situations like this events that a community comes together, we realize that change has to come collectively, we come together through love, but without the suffering, would we ever really realize the power of love or mm. the power of change or the power of hope? Yeah. So I almost wonder if you need, you need suffering in the world to have well, goodness and as, as unfair as a lot of. No, I mean, I, and I know you're not justifying the specifics, yeah. but yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you make a really good point. And frankly, a lot of our religious traditions, specifically in my understanding, a lot of Eastern traditions, Buddhism in particular, um, really embraces this idea, you know, kind of like, if you want to illustrate it, you know, the yin and the yang, right? I mean, there's this idea of you can't know light without knowing darkness. You can't know joy without knowing sorrow. You can't know serenity without knowing suffering, right? That these things exist on a continuum. Um, and there's metaphysics, you know, there's metaphysical ideas that play into that, that I think in a lot of religious traditions help people make, make peace with reality, make peace with the difficulties. And in a way, that's kind of what the, you know, what radical theology or the, the, the take on Christianity that myself and other Christians today, you know, mystics uh, are kind of doing. You're absolutely right. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, we've, boy, that was a lot we covered this morning. It was like a Bible survey course in 25 minutes. Um, but uh, this, of course, is recorded and it's a podcast. So if you want to go back and re-listen to it, you can. Hey, Ellie, you can go up on stage. That's okay. We're done. Um, but yeah, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in and for being here in person. And uh, for those of you who join us uh, via Zoom, thanks for being here. And um, next... Um, Next week, I know you want to jump in, uh, is the beginning of Pride Month. And so we're going to do a, a Pride Month series here on queer theology and um, LGBTQ Christian issues. And we'll have some guest speakers as well.